We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, October 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we're going to be joined by Steph Mullen from IAVA. She's the research director over there. Numbers are her jam. You may have heard it before. You'll hear it again today, and you'll hear the latest and greatest information on the numbers that relate to the veteran community, specifically to the post-9-11 veteran community, because that's who IAVA focuses on. And we're going to talk to Will Fisher, director of government relations for Vote Vets. Vote Vets is... Uh, a controversial organization to some who don't like to see their veteran organizations get involved in politics too much. Well, vote vets, that's what they do. They get involved in politics. It's kind of right there in the name. They're a progressive organization basically supporting Democrats and only Democrats and uh, progressive candidates. We're going to talk to them about their candidates as well as their latest lawsuit aimed at the Trump administration. So we're going to have a lot coming up today on the show. And boy, we've got a lot of great interviews coming up this week for you. And we'll start it off with, uh, you know, mediocre chat featuring Phil Bird Dog Briggs, who joins us live in studio. Phil, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Eric. Hello. Did you have a, a pleasant weekend? I did. I did, yeah. I did, too. And uh, Washington Redskins are now officially in the driver's seat of the NSC East. Thank you very much. Yeah, I stopped watching football last year. And it had nothing to do with people kneeling. It was just sitting there watching the Red Zone channel on a Sunday right. for highlights of my team, which would happen... Maybe once every 25 minutes or so, I'd see some plays <laughs> from the game and realizing, oh, I just spent four hours that I could have spent with my wife and son right. sitting in front of a television watching games that I could not care any less about. I just kind of stopped. I've watched maybe 15 minutes of football this season, maybe, <laughs> and that was opening weekend. Just not for me anymore. You know what I did this weekend? What did you do? I went to an event that I was uh, invited to by a previous guest of the show, and Ooh. that was uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the world, which is... 20-plus million people. The head of uh, that sect of Islam was in Baltimore for the dedication of a new mosque, the inauguration of it, uh, and I was invited to hear him speak huh. and got to go see that. Uh, quite a few impressive people there. Senator Cardin from Maryland was there, the mayor of Baltimore, Catherine Pugh, Marilyn Mosby sitting up on stage. You remember the uh, state's attorney general back when the unpleasantness in Baltimore happened? She was the attorney general oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Was, uh, that was in charge of deciding whether to charge the officers or not. She was there actually sat at a table with her husband who is a member of the Maryland House of Delegates and we talked about veterans issues a little bit and mm. uh, yeah, it was a really fascinating experience also got to be in on the uh, press conference and ask a question um, although my question wasn't fully understood hey English isn't his first language so it was kind of the answers I got weren't exactly to the question that I was asking but you know that kind of stuff happens great though to be invited there by Mansoor Shams aka the Muslim Marine the guy who's famous for walking around with a sign that says I'm a Marine and a Muslim ask me anything and trying to build bridges of understanding between specifically the Akhmadiyya community, which is 
uh, a, a sect within Islam that is uh, growing rapidly hmm. and is really all about uh, peace and love and all that good stuff. So, yeah, it was interesting to, uh, Are you interesting gonna, to be I there. I mean, will we expect a write-up from this? I mean, is this something you're going to cover? Because I actually... I don't know. Uh, Aside from this show, what yeah. everyone should know about you is the conversations I've had about your time over in the sandbox. Uh, well, there wasn't much to say. There was more dust is, up where I was. The dust box. Yeah. Or just flat out enlightening. Mm. I mean, you, like so many people that have been on a fob or been you know somewhere forward deployed like that, um, you've got a real command of, of, of where you were. Of the political situations that you were experiencing, just you know, in the in the region you were, um, I'm dying to know what yeah. what you gained from this because uh, I learn from you every time you talk about what it's like, you know, over there in Afghanistan. It was interesting, and I was speaking to a gentleman named Harris, who's one of the uh, spokespeople for the uh, the U.S. community and 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 works with them, the Akhmadia community. And, uh, it, you know, kind of enlightening him on some things about the region in Afghanistan where I was. Right. And I think because of my job and all the travel, like, as you said, fobs and cops and all that stuff, I've been to them, never lived at them. So I was able to kind of go in and, and not be living the life of being out at a fob where sure. that certainly uh, changes your view of everything. But getting to kind of go through and see things from an outsider's perspective, talk to the people who are dealing with them. Uh, I think we're going to have Mansoor Shams on again to talk about this because, again, the press uh, conference that I was at didn't exactly answer the questions that I had because right. it was just a misunderstanding. And I, I think it had he understood what I was asking, the answers would have been a little bit more clear. But Mansoor is going to come back on uh, in the coming weeks, and we will talk about that. But right now, we've got to talk about a number of things, including more leadership changes at a VA medical center. Phil, are you shocked to hear about a VA medical center making changes to their leadership? What? what? Oh, how can that be? Well, this is at Atlanta, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting that the VA medical center in Atlanta has temporarily reassigned some leaders after it was rated as one of the worst medical centers in the nation. That's right. It got one of those one-star ratings hmm. for VA medical centers. Uh, the regional director said the reassignments do not indicate employee wrongdoing. Uh, Leslie Wiggins said the changes should reassure veterans that the center is committed to quality. All right. Why are they being reassigned then? That's the question I would ask as uh, someone who's worked as a reporter before. If they weren't re reassigned for wrongdoing, then why were they reassigned? Maybe, maybe they were tardy a lot. Tardy. Oh, tardy slips. Did they have permission slips to go to the restroom, all that stuff? Uh, why were they reassigned? And then here's question number two that, again, I don't see being asked. And this is where I'd like to see uh, kind of the angry veteran reporter out there at these VA medical centers. Why are they temporarily reassigned? So what does that mean? Like they're in timeout and then they get to come back into the same jobs that they were <laughs> right. doing when this place was a one-star poop factory? I mean, that's, that's right. basically what we're talking about here. Temporarily reassigned means they're going to be back into those positions eventually. So one, why were they reassigned if it wasn't for any wrongdoing? Two, why are they getting their jobs back if you were a one-star facility? Shouldn't that be the time to bring in some replacements to give them a shot at doing better? Because it appears they can't do too much worse. Yeah, and if you lose, I mean, if you lose the trust of your boss or, like, you don't perform well at your regular job in the civilian world, I mean, take this place, for example. I mean, if, you, if you're if you not doing a good enough job, they don't temporarily reassign you. They they find someone to permanently sit their butt in your seat, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that how most jobs, I mean, I've, I've worked radio, you know, almost two decades. Yeah. I mean, 
That's and, happened every time the boss didn't like what we were doing. And even even so, you can be doing great in, in many things, and then there will just be changes are implemented, and radio is a great example. Format change. Right. Hey, we're going to do a different station, and uh, Phil, you just don't fit the future of what we're doing now. You're not a classical music guy. You're not a jazz guy, so we'll see you later. Hit the brick, sister. Um, that's what they call Phil. Sister. Sister bird dog. <laughs> he was a nun for a short period of time. Hey, it's a long story. We're not going to get into it here. But a news release from the hospital says... The hospital chief is retired, so top person, gone. Uh, good time to retire when right. you hit the lowest of the low. Deputy chief of staff and chiefs of the emergency, primary care, and clinical access service departments have been reassigned. Spokesman says many of the staff members may return to their positions when the investigation is complete. Okay. So <laughs> we've got these people who are running, basically it sounds like a, a number of, if not most of the departments at the Atlanta VA Medical Center, they didn't do anything wrong. We're just reassigning them during this investigation and we'll probably put them back into their jobs. Oh, good. Well, I expect things to change fully there. You guys will be a, I don't know, one and a half star by this time next year. Is that what you're looking for? It's just kind of, kind of, I don't even know what the word is, frustrating, irritating. Could it be though? Could it be, though, that they didn't want to have them in their positions while the investigation was going on because they could have swayed the investigation or they would have the power to make people in certain departments not talk or well, if you do spin that, the truth? If there's an investigation and nobody's talking, that's where that whistleblower accountability and uh, protection act comes in. You know, talk yeah, you on know, your own and then fire him. Get rid of everybody. Yeah, I mean, but you know how it is. I mean, like, I mean, if you if your boss is in the building and you have some smack to talk or you really don't like the person. Yeah. But there's an investigation going on and they're still in the building. Whistleblower Protection Act or not, you're probably less likely to like probably say yeah. something because, you know, you look at so and so down the hall every day and you'd fear that. If he found out that you were, I think a lot of people are like that. I think you're right. I'm not. I don't. I don't care. You know, I, I'll, <laughs> you I'll, openly talk smack. I'll, <laughs> I'll find another job if I need to. You know, at anywhere that I work. I'm not talking about here specifically. If something's right. not right, I kind of have that. I take those Navy Corps values of honor, courage, and commitment <laughs> to heart, man, and and the uh, courage to stand up and the commitment to say, hey, whatever will be, will be. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. But I think there are a lot of people who. Like you said, they're kind of scared of that. They want to keep their jobs. They don't want right. to get in trouble. And standing up and saying something about that can have uh, negative effects on you. Here's the good thing. If you're working for the federal government and you're able to prove that you were let go because you spoke out, that's a big fat lawsuit. And you probably won't have to work again for the rest of your life. So if something's not right at a VA center that you're working at or the Department of Veterans Affairs, speak up. Right, man. Speak up. If they fire you for speaking up, <laughs> it's like hitting the lotto. You don't need to get that $1.6 billion that's being uh, given out tomorrow if you can get $20 million today. You know what I'm saying? So one of those things. We'll keep an eye on what's going on down at the Atlanta VA Medical Center, but uh, it's certainly not good stuff down there. Here is a good story, and you can find this on ConnectingVets.com. Uh, this is the story of a Vietnam-era pilot and his observer. They were killed more than 50 years ago when their plane went down in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. They're now going to be buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. The Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, who we've had on the show before, a really wonderful organization doing incredible work, uh, say that ceremonies for Staff Sergeant Marshall Capina of Calumet, Michigan, and Lieutenant Colonel Robert Knopp of Salem, Oregon, are scheduled for this Thursday. Knopp was 31. Capina was 21 when their aircraft failed to return in 1966 from surveillance mission over Laos, which shares a border with Vietnam. Knopp, of course, was the pilot. The military says visibility was poor at the time due to heavy thunderstorms. 
The site was identified in the 1990s. It was later excavated, but it was just earlier this year that the remains were actually identified and accounted for. Does it surprise you to hear about, you know, 50, 60, 70-year-old remains still coming home at this point, Phil? Or, I mean, you've worked here, so you know that there's great organizations out there doing it. Right. To me, it's still one of those amazing things that this is, you know, technology and the workforce of, well, DOD, when it comes to Defense Department's POWMI accounting agency, uh, bringing our our men and women home. Yeah, I think it was surprising until I did a podcast, um, God bless, and I forget the name of it. It was for last Memorial Day weekend, and we spoke with two guys that were honored at the PBS National Memorial Day concert. You know, they always have that huge thing in D.C., and they bring out a couple of veterans. Uh, They brought out two in particular that had survived as prisoners of war during Korea. And in talking to the one guy, Joe Anello, who told me what it was like to survive in this POW camp for two years and what it was like to be separated from his best buddy, whom he thought was certainly dead and then reunited years later in California. Really sweet story altogether. But when he told me about what it was like to be in this POW camp, it does amaze me that we're able to even find one single missing person because he said he knew of several people that just didn't make it, you know, We, you know, left the earth far too soon and went into God's arms after, you know, after the their experience there at the POW camp. And he said that, you know, he knew where some were, but he couldn't be certain where that place exactly was now 50, 60 years later. Um, so I think each time we find one of these, it's it's like, um, I don't know, finding a nugget of gold, you know, panning for gold in All a right. river. I mean, you're just found with one immense treasure of a story each time you can bring one out. And I wish we could get more of them to surface, but, you know, time has a way of burying so many things yeah. and uh, it's just amazing. And, and, and I'm, I, I, th- I think should be covered in a sweet story every time we can find one of these that surfaces. And there are still a ton of people missing from World War II and World War I, the majority of our unaccounted for. We all think of Vietnam, but that's because it's, it's more recent when you go back to the actual numbers in World War II and World War I. An incredible amount of people missing, many of which will never be found just because of, you know, the the jungles of Papua New Guinea or those who were lost at sea. And I mean, you're just never going to find anything of those people uh, predominantly. But, yeah, there are still so many out there who are missing. And that's why Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency is doing such great work and working hard each and every day. And they're not giving up. You know, the fact that, yeah, we may have had, uh, you know, it's uh, people in Papua New Guinea who went missing out in the jungles that are hard to find. And there's uncontacted tribes in there who attack people on site. If they see them, they're still working on it. Yeah. They're still going to try. All right. Can I say real quick, there's a, a, a side of that job that's very, uh, what's the TV show with the lab coat and the police? Um, CSI. C- exactly. CSI. There's a division of that organization that has, I don't, I don't know if they're, Scientists or archaeologists, but they're, they're the people that are able yeah. to go in, and I forget what their scientific yeah, they, background they, is. They te- check the DNA, they yeah, compare they, it against family members. They yeah. can take a fragment of a bone, or they can take something, and they can determine kind of who that person is or yeah. was depends based on, on circumstance. You, depends on what you have and what's there. Mitochondrial DNA, which you can tie, I think, to the mother's side of the family. So yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting stuff. Of course, uh, still interesting that we're still over in Afghanistan, and a lot still going on over there. In fact. The top three officials in Kandahar province were killed when their own guards opened fire on them at a security conference last Thursday. That includes uh, Kandahar's Deputy Provincial Governor Agalala Dastagari, uh, Provincial Chief Abdul Razik, and Kandahar Governor Zalme Vesa, who actually I met, I believe, once or twice, uh, died of his wounds at a nearby hospital. 
Three Americans were wounded in the shooting. One service member, two civilian workers. Uh, General Miller, who was there, General Scott Miller, the top general in Afghanistan, was not wounded, but we found out uh, after the event that he did, in fact, draw his weapon. I mean, that's how close it got to him. And now the AP is reporting that actually that one wounded service member, pretty high ranking. That was a brigadier general. Jeffrey Smiley was the one who was shot uh, during this event. So. Whenever you have the top guys, like uh, whether it was General Petraeus when I was there uh, or anybody traveling around, there's a whole crew that comes along with them. You're going to have, you know, the top generals in that area along. Brigadier General Jeffrey Smiley was shot in that attack. Um, Yeah, at least one gunshot wound inside the Kandahar governor's uh, compound. So, yeah, this is uh, just goes to show you. I mean, my my. General, right before I left Afghanistan, he got there maybe a month or two before to take over uh, our regional command north, uh, General Major General Kneipp, who was a German army, a tanker. Shortly after I left, like maybe a month after I left, he became, at the time, the highest-ranking officer to be hmm. injured in action in Afghanistan. When uh, uh, Same thing, insider attack. Guys dressed, or I, I don't know if they ever figured out if it was a true insider attack. Guy was dressed as Afghan National Police. Came into where a meeting was, had a bomb, set the bomb off, killed uh, the general as well as, or didn't kill the general, injured the general, killed three men- members of his close protection team, guys who uh, I knew very well and worked very closely with. You know, it, it doesn't matter. That rank doesn't shield you from uh, this kind of stuff. And those insider attacks, they were always a problem when I was over there. That was really yeah. the biggest threat, honestly. I mean, I think we lost, in the region, I think we lost just about as many people to insider attacks as to the Taliban and the Haqqani Network and all of that. Including one where I was, I got on a helicopter at a place called OP North, a Black Hawk, to head back to uh, my main base in Mazari Sharif. When we landed, we found out that like minutes after we left, uh, there were there was an Afghan National Army soldier there opened fire on some Germans who were cleaning one of their vehicles and killed uh, a couple of them. So mm. just one of those things that you always kind of eh, you kept a wary eye on those guys when they were over there. Yeah, they're supposed to be on the same side as you, but are they really? I don't know. Here's an uplifting story after that dark one, Phil. (laughs) The SPCA in Erie County, New York, is going to run a special Vets and Pets adoption event on Veterans Day. They want to help you find your new pal, and they want to do it for free. That's right. Veterans can adopt a dog seven years or older free of charge on Veterans Day. If you're not a dog person, the fee waiver also covers other animals for individuals on active duty, reserves, honorable discharge, service-disabled veterans, retired individuals. And for everybody else, adoptions are half off. So uh, kind of a nice way to do Veterans Day there. You know, it's a it's a, a different thing than what we're used to. It's uh, something that's uh, a little bit more involved than the free pancakes that you can get with your VAID card <laughs> that you haven't gotten. Would you, uh, are, are you, do you have any pets? I don't even know if I've ever I don't. I have, uh, I have two-legged creatures at my house. and uh, Yeah, you have a couple little ones. Yeah, yeah they're enough. Although, you know, they do kind of want a dog. Yeah, oh, every kid wants a dog. Do they um, want to take care of the dog is the question. Well, and that's the thing. Nobody in our house has the time, so that's why we're kind of putting our foot down there until we get to a place where we can dedicate a little more time to the animal. But that's just great, and I think that that shows what a connection there is um, between the animals and the veteran community. Certainly in this day where we have so many issues and so many people are looking for solutions to PTS or the various other kinds of things that go on with some veterans experience when they transition back to civilian life. Animals have long been medicinal 
for oh, yeah. our existence. When whether you were a veteran, whether you were just ha- needing help in life, whether you just wanted some companionship, uh, nothing does it better than a dog. And I, and I'll say hands down, I'm a dog person over cat. People. Oh, I, I'm allergic to cats, but I also just don't care for them. I just think cats. I, <laughs> I I know they do it for some people, but I you know in my neighborhood we walk on these trails. And just yesterday I was hiking with my kids, and the amount of dog people <clears throat> up and down were amazing. And the dog always wants to. <laughs> Walk over to you and oh, sniff yeah. you and say hi. I, I've never really met a cat that greet you know that put a cat on a leash. Good luck a, getting out of the house without your legs being torn to shreds. Never got a warm greeting from a feline. No, doesn't happen. There, uh, I, 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 I guess people like some things about them. I'm, I just think of them as you know little creatures that should be outside killing birds because that's what they seem to want to do. I don't get the cat thing. I'm very much a dog person. But the veterans who are going to be eligible to adopt. A dog, seven years or older, for free. It's a pretty small part of the percentage of the population, Phil. And the U.S. Census Bureau has rolled out their annual look at veteran statistics. Mm. We're going to talk to Steph Mullen about this. 7.3% of U.S. adults have served in the military. So that is less than 1 in 10. Less than 10%. Less than 1 in 10. And here's another interesting one. More than half of America's living veterans are older than 65. Less than 1 in 10 is younger than 35. So less than 1 in 10 of the less than 1 in 10 that are make up the entire population. So it's about 1 in 100 under 35 serves in the military. So about 1% is what we're looking at there. Holy now, cow. These are, these are, of course, not accurate numbers. I'm just ballparking here. But if 1 in 10 have served... And less than one in ten of those are under thirty-five. I can do that math. That's one in one hundred are under uh, thirty-five yeah. as far as the population of veterans. One in one hundred of the U.S. population under thirty-five have served in uniform. Um, it's an all-volunteer force. Now we still have six hundred and fourteen thousand World War II veterans alive. That number, of course, has decreased significantly. There were twelve million who fought in that war. 614,000 alive today. You've also got uh, 6.5 million living veterans from the Vietnam era, which is twice as many as there are serving in the military today. So, or sorry, post 9-11, I should say. So 3.5 million of America's veterans are part of the post 9-11 force. 6.5 million are from the Vietnam era. So the post 9-11, that's 20 years almost at this point. 3.5 million have served. 6.5 still living who served in Vietnam. And of course, there are fewer of those with us each and every day. Here's some good news about this, though, Phil. The average veteran earns $40,500 per year. That's 10000 more than the average American that did not serve. So we're actually making more money than our civilian uh, never-served counterparts, a significant amount, actually. It's about 25% more or something like that, 33% more if they're making 30000 Anyway, veterans are also more educated than their civilian counterparts. More than 65% of us have attended college. That's 5% higher than civilians. And our poverty numbers are lower. 7% of veterans living in poverty 12% of American civilians and non-veterans. So uh, life in the military does take its toll, though, according to the census numbers, with more than 5 million veterans reporting having some sort of disability, counting for 29% of the veterans population, uh, nation, national veterans population. That's nearly double the civilian disability rate of 15%. So disability <laughs> rates higher, percentage of the population lower, making more money. So we've got that going on for us. Again, 40000 to about 30000 for the average American. So a mixed bag. The disability thing doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's a it's a tougher job. It's also, 
you're moving around a lot, and and I mean that in both senses, moving around physically and moving, moving around. around the world yeah. and moving all the time. There's a lot of uh, a lot of things that can cause that to happen. But we're going to talk more about that with Steph Mullen coming up here in just about a minute and twenty seconds or so into the break. When you do talk to her, I'd be curious to know what the trajectory looks like. I mean, at that current percentage, say one percent under thirty five, trajectory looks down. Are we going to be able to sustain? Our readiness. Are we going to be able to sustain the mission that we're oh, tasked isn't about with? Re- no, this is veterans. This isn't about the readiness. The military numbers have stayed pretty, pretty steady for the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something like that. The, the overall number of veterans, though, it's trending down. We're going to lose more and more Vietnam veterans each and every day. They're pushing 70 right. if they joined at 18 now. So there's, they, they are double the population of the post-9-11 generation. So when they're gone, it's just going to be a smaller veteran community. And then you're going to have the issue of, uh, like we talked about in Louisiana a couple weeks ago, where they're shutting down a veteran's home because there's just not enough people to go into it. There's going to be fewer and fewer people, which is good in some ways. It'll be less of a tax on the VA system, but... I don't know. I think they'll still find a way to screw it up. That's kind of what the VA does, you know? (laughs) Even when there are half the number of people that there are today, I'm not sure that that's going to free up the whole uh, bureaucratic nightmare that's over there. But But the lesser number of veterans under 35 doesn't indicate that our armies and uh, Marine and Navy are smaller than they were yeah, they're smaller than they were 50 previously. years ago, but then they were smaller at 70, 50 years ago, they were smaller than they were 70 years so ago. So it hasn't been shrinking within the last 17 years, is what you're no, saying? No, yeah, not yeah. much. It's oh, gone okay. up and down at times. They tried to contract. That's why I got forced out of the Navy, and then uh, they decided against that. And now right. they're trying to pull more people back in, and they're having trouble finding the amount of people. So recruiting is a different issue. We're actually uh, going to talk to General Joseph Langell, who's the head of the uh, National Guard. He is a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I actually had a chance to talk to him last week. We're going to play that for you tomorrow. There's a lot going on, and it's going on at ConnectingVets.com and also on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Will Fisher of Vote Vets. I actually said we were talking to Steph Mullen. She's coming up later. Will Fisher of Vote Vets is up next. Steph Mullen from IAVA coming up later on in the show. Hope you're enjoying your Monday, and thank you for joining us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to do it through a variety of platforms. There's audio. If you're listening to this, you already know that. We've got videos that go up on the website each and every day, including the Facebook Live first segment of the morning briefing every morning, live at 7.15 a.m. And, of course, we've got fantastic articles focusing on news, benefits, Little freebies, all sorts of things that we think you might be interested in. You'll find them on ConnectingVets.com and also by following us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest returns to the show after a, a lengthy stay away. We haven't had him on in a while, but it's my pleasure to welcome Will Fisher of Vote Vets back to the morning briefing. Will, how are you doing this morning? Happy to be here with you today, Eric. Thank you. We've already introduced you before, so let's give everybody the Cliff's Notes version. Of course, you are a veteran yourself, so you know where you're from, when you joined, and what'd you do? I am, yeah. Will Fisher, uh, originally from Columbia, Tennessee. It's about 30 minutes south of Nashville, and it was there in Nashville that I joined the Marine Corps initially as a reservist, and then... And was put on active duty and deployed with India Company 3rd Battalion, 24th Marines, to Iraq in 2004. Came home, got out of the Marine Corps, and uh, now I work uh, as the Director of Government Relations at Vote Vets. We're the nation's largest progressive veterans organization with more than 600,000 members across the country. Of course, 
there are the apolitical veterans organizations out there, those who only get political when it's related to something that's uh, a positive for veterans. We're talking about VFW, American Legion, the veteran service organizations like that. That's not what Vote Vets is. You guys are a politically active group who have uh, a position on the issues. A-, a question for you about that. I, whenever I've mentioned vote vets or something, they'll be like, oh, those guys, you know, they're all political. Yeah, exactly. Does it ever frustrate you that people are like, well, vote vets is political? Yeah, you guys are pretty upfront about that, right? Absolutely. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people to vote vets, people who want to get involved. And they, uh, you know, they're a veteran and they have a set of beliefs and they come across vote vets and sees that this is here's a veterans organization that celebrates beliefs that are similar to those that that I celebrate. And because of that, I will tell you that we have seen vote vets steadily growing since our founding in 2006, and we continue to grow every single day. It's always interesting to me when I talk about uh, talk to people about the more politically active groups like, say, Vote Vets or Concern Vets for America, the different groups that are out there. People say, well, they don't speak for me. Yeah, but they do speak for someone, and they do have a membership that is for them. So how important do you think it is for people who might be on the other side of the political spectrum to at least acknowledge and understand that, yeah, there are veterans out there who might be more conservative or might be more progressive, and they're going to have their own groups like Vote Vets, for example? Well, I think that, you know, uh, very often I think we hear that side come from, or that kind of commentary come from people who have never served or maybe not even know people who serve, because anyone who has ever served knows that within a, a, a group of folks, when you're, one is on active duty or one is a reservist and in their unit and having conversations, you will quickly realize that the military is one of the most diverse groups one could ever come across, right? You're going to have people yeah. of every opinion you can possibly imagine, and you're going to have plenty of time, whether it be in a smoke pit or on a watch or uh, during some type of training to uh, – have plenty of time to have conversations around those issues and sometimes rather heated debates on those issues as well. Do you ever hear from fellow Marines who are shocked that you're so progressive? They think of Mar- we think of Marines as those kind of you know hardcore killers. They tend to skew more right than left. Is it is it a shock to any people when they find out you're a Marine? Not not really, especially not to those with whom I served. Right, they've certainly known my political ideology, and then I also like to promote the idea that there have been plenty of Marines. Throughout, throughout history who have been progressives. I think probably one of the most famous is a fellow named uh, Smedley Butler, a mm-hmm. retired major general, served as United States Marine, was awarded two Congressional Medals of Honor, got out and wrote a book called War is a Racket and became quite an anti-war uh, organizer. Uh, so certainly not uh, an original in my, in my progressive beliefs. No one is a monolith. No organization is, even not the United States Marine Corps. Of course, vote vets, busy time of year for you guys. We are now less than a month out from the elections. How many candidates is vote vets supporting in the elections, uh, the the national elections specifically for Congress? Yep. So we have 19 challengers. These are going for seats that are currently either vacant or... Or they're running against incumbents. So that's 19 of those folks. Then on top of that, we have another nine uh, incumbents. These are our people like, you know, Congressman Ted Lieu, Tulsi Gabbard, Anthony Brown, Seth Moulton, et cetera. And then we have three candidates um, who are running for governor. And then on top of that, we have um, two candidates for U.S. Senate who are up right now as well. That's Bill Nelson and Tom Carper. 
There are a, a lot of people who are running for office who once wore the uniform. We've had several of them on this show, including candidates uh, that have been endorsed by vote vets like Chrissy Houlihan, who was just on in the last few weeks. When you look at uh, each of those races, I know you guys are paying uh, more close attention to them than I am. I just give it a glance once in a while. How are things looking for the candidates that you guys are endorsing? I'm sure there are some that are pretty much a lock, some that are going to be uh, close races, some that are going to be... Uh, a long shot maybe at this point. How confident are you that you're going to see uh, uh, many of those? And do you have any numbers I, uh, as far as an idea of who might get elected? Yeah, I will tell you that we're feeling good right now. We're feeling good uh, about uh, certainly individual candidates, but then across the board. And what we're really feeling excited about is the fact that the organizing that we have been doing, not only you know this election cycle, but going back to our founding, is really starting to result in having a larger, a major impact in national politics. We're going to win the majority of our races this cycle. And that's not just me talking. That's not hyperbole. That's Nate Silver, you know, at 538.com said that veterans who are endorsed by vote vets have a a greater chance of winning than veterans who are not endorsed by vote vets. And we have seen that play out through the entire primary season. And we're going to see it play out um, in the general election as well. We're speaking to Will Fisher from Vote Vets. They are a progressive political organization made up of veterans like Will, who served in the Marine Corps. When we talk to these candidates like Miss Houlihan, like uh, Ken Harbaugh out in Ohio, who we've had on the show, and on the other side of the political spectrum, people like Dan Crenshaw, who's looking like a pretty sure thing down in Houston where he's running, they all say that they believe their shared veteran background is going to be something that allows them to come together and to find common ground, if not on political issues that they differ on very strongly, then certainly on some issues. How do you think that's going to work out? Do you think that m- that's more a uh, political talking point, or do you think they truly believe that they will be able to work together more closely? Closely than other members of Congress might. I certainly think that they will be able to sit down and have a conversation with each other and respect each other and treat each other with dignity. I think that you would saw, saw uh, you know, a a what could that look like when Daniel Inouye died? And mm. Daniel Inouye, as his body was lying in said the U.S. Capitol, Bob Dole came over and stood up from his wheelchair, saluted it, saluted him, and sat back down. And they were tremendous friends, and they had become friends when they were recovering from wounds together in an army hospital during the Second World War. And they were of vastly different political ideologies, but they shared this common experience where they met, you know, in Italy after both being, you know, shot to pieces. And they carried that with them, and they were able to look at each other with a shared mutual respect that while they didn't vote together that often, (laughs) they would certainly, uh, you know, break bread with each other when they had that opportunity and they always treated each other with dignity and with respect. And we saw more of that with the recent passing of John McCain and the exactly. other people like Chuck Hagel, who was a good friend of his, despite the fact that politically they didn't agree on much of anything. I actually had the chance to see the two of them interact apparently for the last time at a presentation of Ken Burns, the Vietnam War in D.C. And just seeing that uh, that mutual respect and that ability for an old sailor and an old soldier uh, to just talk to each other. It's something uh, in this current political climate I think we could certainly use more of. 
Uh, when it comes to the elections and the veterans who might be on the other side of the political spectrum, of course, every member of the House of Reps is up for election this year. So you're talking people like Brian Mast, who just worked uh, with Tulsi Gabbard on burn pit registration legislation to get that in there. Um, are, is vote vets really positive on all veterans getting into office or are you really just more focused on the ones who fall more in line with your political feelings? How do you look at the the Republicans and the more conservative? Yeah. Well, I would say this. I mean, look, it takes more than one being a veteran veteran to receive an endorsement from vote vets. I mean, if that weren't the case, then, you know, if it were, if we were just in the business of, oh, we need as many veterans in office as we could, then we would have supported Roy Moore, which mm. we absolutely weren't going to support <laughs> Roy Moore ever, no. right? Uh, I, I, I would have been thrilled to have Mike Pompeo become the Secretary of State, and I worked rather hard to try to make Mike Pompeo not be the Secretary of State. So it's, yes, we're working to get veterans elected, but what we're trying to do is work to get progressive veterans elected each and every single day. So you're saying essentially that it's it's it can be a good thing for more veterans to be in office, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And that's kind of, we've talked about that. We just uh, had a story the other day about a, a reservist military policeman in the Army who turned out to be running a prostitution ring. I mean, the fact that you've worn the uniform, it doesn't automatically make you a good person <laughs> or a good fit for political office, does it? Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more going on, of course. The elections are the big one. And as we come up, uh, I believe it's November 6th this year, right? That's the Mm -hmm. Tuesday that that's taking place on. There are a number of veterans running for office and a number of organizations that are endorsing them. For the candidates more on the progressive and left side, you've got Vote Vets, you've got With Honor, who goes over uh, both parties and endorses uh, people as as different as Chrissy Houlihan and Dan Crenshaw. Um, You know, there's a lot going on with the elections, but... Vote Vets has not taken their eye off of everything else that's happening, including over at the VA, where you, along with Democracy Forward, are part of a lawsuit to basically get the VA to release information on the, quote, Mar-a-Lago crowd. That Mm -hmm. is the group of three, including Marvel CEO Ike Perlmutter, a doctor, and another guy who essentially, it's believed, had some outsized influence on the VA. Most people I've talked to, including lawyers about that, have said eh, they don't really know if there was anything illegal going on there. Is the lawsuit about trying to find out if there was anything illegal, or is it just trying to bring any information on what interaction they had with the VA to light? Exactly. So the president of the United States is allowed to have advisory committees. He can set those up whenever he would like to, and he can turn to them as often as he wants. But there are rules in place on how those advisory committees function. They have to announce their meetings. They have to keep minutes. They have to keep notes. And they have to operate uh, with a certain level of transparency. And that has not been happening. So what our suit is all about is what was this group, what was their role in directing activities at the Department of Veterans Affairs? What were they talking about? And how can we bring that to light And if this committee is going to continue to exist, how can we make sure that the voices of veterans are able to be in the room by those meetings that they have being made public? We also heard recently that some members of Congress have been requesting, uh, you know, through Freedom of Information Act, to to get the files on uh, what's known about this uh, Mar-a-Lago influence on the VA and have essentially been stonewalled by the VA which seems odd to me. It seems that Congress is kind of in charge of overseeing what happens at the VA. Who is the VA to say no to them over that? How have you guys viewed that kind of stonewalling? 
Well, uh, it's it's a problem, and it's why our lawsuit is so important. And we certainly think that Ranking Member Walls and the other members of the committee who are pushing for these documents, uh, they they need to be made available to them, mm-hmm. and with great haste. Because right now, when you're stonewalling, you're playing games, right? And you're playing games with the Department of Veterans Affairs, and that endangers veterans. It certainly can. We're speaking with Will Fisher of Vote Vets about a number of issues, including the upcoming elections and what's going on over at the VA. Let me ask you, Will, you guys were involved in a lawsuit over the nomination of Robert Wilkie as well. Uh, The way that it was done didn't follow the rules and regulations of how it was supposed to go. Uh, Again, seems to be a bit of a recurring theme right now with things over at the VA. Uh, He's, of course, been in office for a few months now. He's gotten some pretty solid reviews for the most part from the VSOs that we talk to regularly. How does Vote Vets think he's done in office, separate from the nomination process for Robert Wilkie? Yeah, you know, I will tell you that uh, Secretary Wilkie came in, and from the conversations that we've had, he is he is tried to say that he is going to focus on improving morale uh, for VA employees, which certainly could mm. stand for improvement. He has said that he has no interest in pursuing a path towards VA privatization, and. Uh, we're going to give him, okay, well, let's see how that plays out. I mean, I'm not going to judge somebody on, you know, 60 days worth of work, right. um, especially coming into the type of situation with so much up in the air uh, that he did walk into. But we're going to continue to stay on top of him. This stonewalling, as you brought up with the issue with the Mar-a-Lago crowd, this is something where he has said, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work for those folks. I'm not going to stand for that. Okay, well, then... Why are you stonewalling now, releasing and making public their activities? Um, If you're not beholden to them, why are you acting beholden to them? So we want to get to the bottom of that. We're, of course, going to continue to work to prevent any type of effort to destroy and privatize our VA. And then we're going to fight to want to work with him to find out where those areas are where we can work together on um, infrastructure investment into VA, on updates and repairs in the brick and mortar, on the IT side, across the board. And then, look, come January, the House of Representatives is going to look a lot differently and then working with the committee on those oversight procedures uh, to make sure that we have a VA that is set up and equipped and enabled to make sure that every veteran in this country is able to receive the health care and benefits that they earned. Do you think that the veterans who might be elected into Congress, again, you're talking about just that 20 uh, that vote vet, 21 that vote vets has already endorsed Nin- for them? Uh, 19 challengers. 19 challengers. Yeah. There you go. Or open seats. And right then you've got others on the other side as well. Do you think that those that infusion of veterans, that, that it looks like will happen with the House of Representatives anyway, could be a positive with maybe them getting on the House Veterans Affairs Committee to get more involved with the VA? Because someone like, you know, using someone who vote vets has not endorsed, Dan Crenshaw, lost an eye, almost lost his life, uh, is very familiar with the VA medical care, uh, which can be fantastic. And of course, also familiar with the VA bureaucratic and admin sign, which can be nightmarish, it seems, more often than not uh, for some people. Do you think that that infusion of new veteran blood into Congress can make a difference for the VA? 
today? Or do you see that as any progress that's been made now may be uh, set back a little bit by new people coming in who may want to get more involved with it? Oh, I know. I know. I think it's a good thing when you have people involved who know what something's like. I, I remember joking once when, you know, you mentioned Chuck Hagel a little while ago. I was like, you know, it's cool to have a secretary of defense who's been on a working party before, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I think that uh, it's uh, it's a good thing to have people debating veterans issues who have a VA card in their uh, in their wallet or in their pocketbook. Yeah, I mean, it would make a, a lot of sense to me if everybody on the House Veterans Affairs Committee and Senate Veterans Affairs Committee was someone who had a dog in that fight, who was a veteran and actually had friends, family members, or themselves who were invested and involved with uh, the services provided there. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen. No, and I don't think that's just... I do think that one one doesn't have to be a veteran to be an right. advocate for veterans and to be have a have a, a huge role to play you know Mark Takano for example is not a veteran he's likely to be the next chair of the House Veterans Affairs Committee we've endorsed him for that position right. and we think he'd do a great job with it well he's a guy who I wasn't aware of until just last week I wrote an opinion piece on uh, IAVA held a flag planting ceremony uh, 5200 flags for the veterans that have killed themselves so far this year each and every member of Congress was invited to attend. Representative Takano was the only one who actually showed. You had some staff members sent over, I believe, from, um, oh, man, I want to say from uh, uh, Senator Tester's office. But he was the only actual member of Congress that showed up there, uh, which shows a positive thing. We've had Senator Tammy Baldwin on before mm-hmm. uh, talking about she's got a program trying to get veterans into flight schools, uh, not pilots, other people who just have an interest in flying I don't think you need to be a veteran, certainly, to advocate for veterans, although I do think that when it comes to the VA, having a bit more boots-on-the-ground experience can certainly be helpful for Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe a mixture of the two, right, which is kind of what we have now, Um, although we are at one of the lowest levels of veterans in Congress since, uh, you know, the World War II generation Mm -hmm. has essentially left office. Uh, It'll be very interesting to see what happens this election cycle and see how many more veterans are added. I think there's going to be quite a few, including those who are supported by vote vets. When it comes to voting, I'm sure uh, while you'd like your candidates to get into office, you'd like everybody to get out there and let their voice be heard on uh, November 6th, right? Absolutely. You know, this, this feeling happens to me every two years where... In the wake of the election, the percentage of people who voted, those numbers will come out. And there is always just something so sort of chest-rattling about that. Oh, where you, yeah. When you're just like, my goodness, how could anyone in the climate in which we're in, whether, no matter which side you're on, not want to be involved, right? At least to go vote. At least to have your voice heard. Because there are so many... Uh, avenues for people lifting their voices, whether somebody can pull up a camera, post something on YouTube and let their opinion be known. Somebody can go on Twitter and tweet something and let their opinion be known. But it's in the ballot box that you can let your opinion be known in the most effective way that we have in this country. It's absolutely true. And it's an unfortunate fact of life that we have uh, quite a few more people clicking like on Facebook posts and YouTube videos than clicking for one of the candidates in that voting booth. Eric, if I may, one other thing. You, when you talk about the, the influx of veterans coming yeah. uh, into Congress, that I think is a very, very important thing to keep in mind. And I think it will be an outcome. And that is so often 
you know, when walking the, uh, the halls of Congress, there is an idea of what is and what is not a veterans issue. Like, oh, veterans issues. You mean VA. You mean yeah. GI Bill. The more veterans we have in Congress, though, the more you're able to be reminded that everything is a veterans issue because veterans are part of society just like everybody else. Yeah, right? we are. So, uh, you know, when somebody's talking about uh, increase to the minimum wage, right, you know, one in five veterans – are in a minimum wage job. So mm-hmm. is increasing the minimum wage a veterans issue? Absolutely. Literally. Or when somebody is talking about um, SNAP benefits, right? It's there are 23,000 active duty households who enrolled in SNAP or there are one in nearly two million veterans, one and a half million veterans who receive SNAP benefits. So is SNAP a veterans issue? It absolutely is. And I think when we have more and more veterans in Congress, we will have more and more veterans talking about a variety of issues affecting the working class and people are going to hear that message and they're going to see it coming from a veteran and it will be through that that people really will be able to start breaking open this idea of what is and what is not a veteran's issue. Yeah, find an issue and there's some veteran tie to it because there's some veteran who's dealing with it, whether it's, uh, as you said, whether it's SNAP benefits, food stamps, things like that. It's unfortunate, but you have active duty military families who do need that assistance on top of what the military gives them. We've been speaking with Will Fisher from VoteFets. Will, if people are interested in finding out more about the organization, where do they go to do so? I would encourage all of your listeners to check us out online at VoteVets.org, and you can certainly follow us on Twitter and Facebook, both at at VoteVets. And, of course, get out there and vote. Whether you agree with VoteVets or you absolutely everything that they say, get go out vote. there and vote and get your voice heard on Election Day. It's coming up soon. Will, thank you so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Our thanks to Will Fisher from Vote Vets for joining us today. Still to come, we're going to talk to Steph. Numbers are her jam. Mullen from IAVA. Going to talk about a number of statistical and data-related things because, well, that's Stephanie's expertise. She is an SME on data and numbers, and she's going to talk to us about some important ones today. Getting back to those who are running for Congress 172 veterans are actually running for office. Now, no, they're not all going to get elected. We're not going to see 172 veterans getting into office. Uh, Some of them are fringe candidates at best. Uh, Others are, as we were talking about, uh, very close to the top of their individual races, if not right at the top of them, including some former guests of the show like Chrissy Houlihan, Dan Cat, or sorry, Dan Crenshaw, Ken, Ken Harbaugh. There's a lot of people who are uh, legitimate contenders, and then there's some who are just kind of, uh, you know, their names are on the ballot and not much more. There's actually a list of all 172 over at Military Times. Uh, it's like a spreadsheet type of thing that you can go through see where they served, what they did. Um, You do have some people like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. He served in the Navy in the 1990s. And, you know, there's uh, uh, other people that you might not know of like him who actually has a fairly recognizable name. A lot of people don't know that he served in the military. So there might be some that surprise you on there, some that are already in office that you didn't know served in the military, some that you certainly did. I mean, Ruben Gallego, a Democratic congressman from Arizona, served in the Marine Corps, deployed in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 
Uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there who served that you're aware of and some that served that you're not aware of. Either way, uh, you know, just nice to know that there are veterans who are looking to continue serving in this additional and new way. We'll be back with Steph Mullins from IAVA right after this. It's the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And we will also be back right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan. It's what we're doing, and you know where we're doing it. It's right there in the name, ConnectingVets.com. We're also on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So give us a little click on your mouse or tap on your phone to help you live your best veteran life because that's what our team of veterans is all about, getting you the information, the benefits, the stuff that you need to not just live but to thrive and succeed. We're putting it out there each and every day. So come on, give us a follow. What are you waiting for? At Connecting Vets. You can also give a follow to IAVA. They're on all those social media platforms. In fact, they've got a much larger footprint than we do. And right now, their research director, Stephanie Mullen, is here to join us and talk about some uh, very interesting numbers-related things because those things are her jam. You've heard it before, and you'll hear it again. Stephanie, good morning. How are you today? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. It's a little chilly out. Fall is finally here. It's Feeling chilly. Good. It's a Monday. I had frost on my car this morning. Ooh. I had to actually remember, like, oh, how do I get this off of the uh, of the windshield? And thankfully, I had some of the windshield wiper fluid that de-ice is in there, <laughs> so it got it off. But yeah, winter is coming. Fall has arrived. And of course, no matter the season... IAVA is always working, always working on veterans' issues, and we're going to talk about a few of those today, including one that we've talked about before with several members of the organization, and that is the efforts to get the motto changed at the Mm -hmm. VA. Of course, that comes from the Abraham Lincoln quote, he who born the battle, uh, IAVA would like to see that changed to something more inclusive. There are people who disagree with that, who say, hey, this is a quote. You don't change quotes from people. I mean, in journalism, you certainly don't. What's the latest on the uh, the fight to get that motto changed? I've heard a little bit more about it again recently. Mm-hmm. So this is part of our She Who Born the Battle campaign, which you just summarized at least part of it, which is the motto change. Um, we do We are pushing for a more inclusive motto so that everyone that walks through VA's door feels like they're welcome there. And that's the real big part is the culture change that needs to happen at VA. So this has been an 18-month campaign, and our newest iteration has been a petition uh, to the Department of Veterans Affairs in partnership with the Yale Law School, Service Women Action Network, and New York Veterans Alliance. And it's a petition for rulemaking request. Uh, And it's basically going to have VA take a stance on this issue and say, you know, why aren't you changing the motto Say it on in the open. We've been asking you for 18 months. We just want a straight answer. And please change it if you don't, you know? Um, So I think it's really important to just take a moment and step back and lay out a little bit more about what the petition says, right? Because you're right. The Department of Veterans Affairs motto is uh, for he who bore in the battle, his widow and his orphan. And it is a quote from Lincoln's second inaugural address. But it's important to note that it was picked in 1959. So it wasn't picked 200 years ago. And it was picked by then head of the VA. So there wasn't any rulemaking that went through. Congress didn't pick it. It was just the head of the VA decided that was the motto that was going to be picked. We're not saying change Lincoln's words. No one wants to change Lincoln's words. But there is a precedence for changing a motto 
for it to be a little bit more inclusive of those that that motto represents. Um, for example, the Air Force Academy in 2003 changed their motto from bring me men to integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. Right. It's interesting, although, I mean, when you're talking about the Air Force changing their motto, uh, that that's a more, it's it's not as tied to history, their motto, I guess. And I understand what you're saying about the, the VA's motto in, in the 50s only coming to be. Here's Here's another aspect of it. Before I talked to you guys, had no idea what the motto of the VA was. I don't think most people who go to the VA do. What would you say to people who say this is kind of like you guys are arguing over something that doesn't really make a big difference? I mean, it doesn't matter what the motto is. What matters is the care. And if the majority, and I I would bet that the majority couldn't recite the motto to you if you asked, if they don't even know what it is, then what difference will changing it actually make? So no one's disagreeing that care is the most important thing right. and no one's saying that we changed the motto our work here is done we're all good to go <laughs> culture all right, change let's has go happened home. the VA is fixed exactly <laughs> we do see this as a symbolic change right and this is the first of many changes that need to happen at VA uh you know quite frankly 10% of the veteran population is women and to say for him who was born the battle it doesn't apply to 10% of that population and when 9 million veterans go to VA for care every year, it's not applying to that 10%. They're not hymns that are walking through that door. Uh, right. I think I just want to kind of illustrate this culture change a little bit better. Um, my mom is Air Force vet. I said it before on this program. But she actually goes to a VA out in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Last time she went, the first thing she heard when she got out of her car was, where's your husband? <laughs> and we hear that all the time, that... Women veterans are treated like second-class citizens in a place that they are supposed to be, that they've earned the benefit to be, that they've earned the right to be there. Um, and so, you know, you see those words on the outside of the VA, and it does it marks your first interaction with VA. Before you even walk through the doors, women vets feel that they're not included in the system. So I would say that absolutely words matter. This is part of a culture change and a larger shift that needs to happen at VA. Right. I, I, I suppose it could be a first step, but I'm going to bet you that the people who said that also, again, I don't think most people know what the motto is. So uh, symbolic, certainly, but mm-hmm. will that uh, lead to any change? Maybe eventually, but that's a long, long, long fight. Um, there's a lot of fighting going on over at the VA when it comes to uh, the care, when it comes to the facilities. We've got the Atlanta VA Medical Center temporarily reassigning their leaders after they've, they're now down to a one-star facility, although they've said, yeah, those people probably get their jobs back after the investigation's done. Oh, great. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, yeah, the VA is certainly something that, that a lot needs to be fixed. And, I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who will look at this and say, well, it's just it's kind of a silly thing to be fighting out. But you guys obviously don't view it that way. You view it as sometimes symbolic change needs to happen. And it's not like that's the only thing at the VA that IAVA is focused on. Right. You guys aren't just dealing with a motto only. And then after that's done, we'll move on to other stuff. Absolutely not. Our She Who Born the Battle campaign hits it all. So absolutely. The motto is part of our She Who Born the Battle campaign. It's right there in the campaign title. Um, But culture change is a huge part of it. It's also access to care for women veterans and decreasing those barriers to care. Part of those barriers to care is that culture change, right? Is that feeling of welcomeness when you walk in the door. Part of it is making sure that there is an OBGYN available for women veterans when they need it or a separate waiting room for uh, survivors of MST that they have a safe place to go. 
um, when they're waiting for their appointments. So there's a lot that is going into this campaign, and certainly it's not just the motto. It is culture change. It is actual physical structural change. And uh, if you want to learn more, it's IVA.org slash she who born the battle. And it's interesting that when it comes to the VA, there are a lot of people fighting to be able to be seen outside of the VA network. Uh, A lot of the women veterans are fighting for the ability to be seen inside the VA network. Mm -hmm. Now, the VA is complaining about all the people who want to use the choice programming it's seen out in town, but they're also complaining about, or maybe not openly complaining, but they're not doing a lot to provide the facilities and to get the facilities ready for the issues that face female veterans specifically. So that's that's pretty interesting. We don't want you to go and be seen out in town. We also are not going to put everything into effect to allow you to be seen here would seem to be a bit of a contradiction when it comes to those things. Uh, There's another issue, and there's a new law up in Canada as it relates to cannabis, a.k.a. the marijuana, a.k.a. the reefer, all those lovely things that we call it. The VA, at least now, they're supposed to be allowed to discuss in places where it's legal, like Washington, D.C., for example. They're supposed to be able to discuss with their patients uh, the effects of marijuana, where it might be useful, uh, where it wouldn't be useful, and so on. But they're still not allowed to prescribe it. They're still not allowed to refer people to places. I mean, it's it's we're playing this silly game with uh, marijuana, it seems like. Do you think that the changing of a law of, of one of our closest allies and certainly our closest neighbor, Canada, do you think that the changing of a law there is maybe a sign of things to come here? Or is that maybe not how we should look at it? Yeah, I certainly hope so would be the short answer to that. Uh, But Canada did legalize all forms of uh, marijuana slash cannabis. Same thing, just so we're clear, uh, on October 17th. So both medical and recreational. They're only the second country in the world to do so, the first world economy. So I think the U.S. is sort of looking at Canada as, well, what's going to happen up there? And how can we maybe model it in the U.S.? And Years from now, I think we're a couple years out from being able to do that. Um, but I do think it raises a really good question uh, for us in the veteran space. When you look at so many of our veterans today served with Canadian veterans, like mm. our allies that served in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of Canadians were right there beside us in many ways. And um, those veterans now have access to cannabis in medical form, in recreational form, as they decide. And we're still fighting here to allow uh, a veteran to go to the VA and get a recommendation from their clinician. Right. And to even study cannabis and see, well, does it help for these wounds of war that impact the community so powerfully, like PTSD, like chronic pain? Um, we can't even get that far, but our neighbors to the north have just legalized it yeah. in this huge way. So I really think it should be food for thought for all of us. And we hope that it'll push our campaign further uh, and at least allow for the research. And when it comes to the legalization in the states, again, it's this silly game that people are playing. When I found mm-hmm. out how they do it in Washington, D.C., where it's legal to have it, it's legal to give it to someone, it's not legal to sell it. So what they do at these stores is you go in and you buy a T-shirt or something like that, and they give you a free gift of marijuana. Come on, what are we doing? Why are we? Why are we, if you're going to allow it, allow it. If you're not going to allow it, don't allow it. Uh, it just seems that for the VA's purposes, doing the research on it is the very least they can do. And we've heard arguments that well, it's a Schedule One drug, so they can't do research. Then we found out that yes, they can, but the marijuana has to be from one specific Mississippi State University. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's a very weak strain. It has problems with bacteria and mold by the time it gets to the VA. 
we're putting all these hurdles in front of ourselves, it seems. Well, mm-hmm. we and they, the federal government is. Uh, do you envision something as looking at the numbers, looking at the research, looking at the change of opinion when it comes to marijuana in the veteran community and in general? Do you think it is just a couple of years away or is it 10, 20, 30 years away? I mean, is it what, what do you think is going to happen with this? Yeah, um, I am not a psychic, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I were. Dumb. I wish I could tell you. Right, well, um, there go my next few questions. Right. <laughs> I think that the tide is turning, right? We have more and more states that are legalizing cannabis in one form or another. And eventually the federal government is going to have to respond. Um, I think that in the veteran space, this is a really particular issue because so many people within the vet space are impacted by the wounds of war that cannabis could potentially treat. Mm. And the longer that we wait to do the research, the longer that we wait to allow clinicians to make those recommendations, um, the worse off our veterans are. And I think that that is a message that really resonates with people in D.C. and also outside of D.C. that maybe wouldn't like to hear that message about cannabis in any other sense. But I think when you relate it to people really suffering and trying other things that just aren't working, it's more impactful Um, So I see a lot of hope in the veteran space, but I think ultimately um, it'll depend on what the federal government does long term. Yeah. And again, when they keep playing silly little games in certain localities, there are places where you can just walk in and you buy the stuff straight out. But in Washington, D.C., uh, I have a friend who uh, who uses a service that's uh, online and you buy a digital photograph and then you're given a free gift of it's again, we're playing silly little games. I hate mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, just just do it. Just do it the right way. And then it, for the VA's purposes, doing the research on uh, the medical efficiency and efficacy of marijuana. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who know what the results are going to be and they don't like it. They'd like to be able to say, well, this doesn't help, but there are plenty of studies out there that show that it does. It can be used as a, a, an appetite aid. It can be used as a sleep aid. It can be used for uh, pain and it's also not addictive or at least not as addictive as opioids. Also, not as deadly as opioids. We can cut back on that number. It seems like a no-brainer, but uh, the more and more you learn about how the federal government deals with things, you realize there's really no such thing as a no-brainer. They're always going to put some sort of brain into it or some other part of their body. We're speaking with Steph Mullen. She is the research director of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, a.k.a. IAVA. You guys were in the news for some pretty flashy stuff recently. I saw some clothes that I would never wear because I wear very basic, you know, colors. I wear a lot of blue. I wear black pants, gray pants, and I have a pair of tan pants, and that's about it. But there was a a fashion spread that I saw, and it turned out IAVA was kind of behind it. So what can you tell us about that clothing collaboration with JCRT and how it happened? Yeah, so really excited to launch a limited edition clothing line. Uh, We're partnering with JCRT, uh, and they are two really uh, impactful people in the fashion space that have aligned with us um, to create this clothing line that's based off of their own personal experience with their family returning home uh, from combat deployments. They wanted to partner with us uh, to support our mission. So there's a whole line of plaid shirts, which not all are very crazy. (laughs) Just want to put that out there. Some of them are, you know, your typical plaids that you see this time of year. It's the perfect time for your plaid shirts. Uh, And others are different variations on camo, different variations on the, um, 
what pinstripe pants, the army pants. Um, it, you know, everyone has their own taste and they're willing to go outside of it. But I think there's a little something for everyone there. And when you buy a, t- a plaid shirt um, or really anything from the line, 10% goes to support our mission and specifically our RIP team, which supports um, transitioning service members as they get settled into their new life and connects them with what they need where they need. So they need transition support, finding a job or financial support or even something as like a house loan. They are there to support that veteran. Um, so 10% goes to our mission. And if you buy a plaid shirt, again, not all of them are super crazy. Some no, of them have I, muted know, the colors. That, the ones that stuck out to me are the more crazy ones. <laughs> As I look through the photos now, there are some uh, some fairly normal shirts on there. Just a plaid <laughs> pattern that's uh, a little bit different, but not crazy. Then you've exactly. got the camouflage patterns where uh, there's there's one where it's like I have Play-Doh colors, I think is how I can best describe it. It's these really bright, colorful things, but... That can be a good thing where it really sticks out. Um, also, the pants with the stripe down the side, like you said, like the, they're like the, uh, the the Army dress pants and the Marine Corps dress blue pants. Boy, that's something that it's it's interesting to see on civilian clothes after you're so used to seeing it on yeah. military uniforms. Where did the partnership uh, emanate from? Because fashion designers and veterans organization, not mm-hmm. two things that you would normally think come into contact with each other that, that often. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was... JCRT uh, looking to partner with a veteran organization um, because of their experience with their family. They had family members that um, were impacted by <clears throat> um, by service, and so they wanted to support the veteran community, and um, we were lucky enough to get to partner with them on this. And so, again, every plaid shirt that you buy, um, it will – we will provide a plaid shirt for a veteran returning home. So even if the camo's not your thing, you know, maybe you want to go out on a limb and try something new. But if the plaid shirt is your thing, we also provide one for a veteran transitioning home too. They've got one here, the Navy Working Uniform Plaid Shirt. So the NWU, which is kind of being out, phased out now, was that kind of odd blue and gray and black camouflage. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got this shirt that kind of uses that color palette. So it's not the actual NWU pattern, but the similar color uh, palette, I suppose, that's there. So yeah, you've got some interesting things available uh, through this. And, of course, you do have some that are uh, really just a dress shirt that is not the crazy Play-Doh neon color camouflage one the uh, World War II parachute, parachute camouflage flannel shirt. For those who like their camo stuff, this is a, uh, a nice shirt that also has a World War II era camo pattern, which is uh, just the normal one uh, for those paratroopers back then. We're speaking with Stephanie Mullen. Steph is the research director at IAVA. Numbers are her jam. And, of course, galas are part of IAV's jam. And you've got one coming up in New York City, which is ground zero, along with Washington, D.C., for IAVA. What can you tell us about this gala and who's going to be there? Absolutely. So our Heroes Gala is our biggest event of the year, and it's happening November 8th in New York City. It'll be at the Manhattan Classic Car Club this year. So it's a new venue for us. And we're really excited. We bring together um, a lot of people from the veteran space and outside the veteran space for just a night of community and celebration. Um, And we'll be honoring Marine vet and actor Rob Briggle. Oh, nice. As well as philanthropist and Craigslist founder Craig Newmark. Uh, And we'll also have a couple of special guests, including Stephen Colbert and Jeffrey Wright. Wow, it's going to have some pretty big names there. Rob Riggle, of course, retired now. I believe he was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Mm -hmm. Corps when he finally retired. I remember 
really learning that he was in the Marine Corps and then learning that we had been to the same place when he went on, I don't know if it was Letterman, it was on one of the talk shows and they talked to him about being a Marine. It was early on as he kind of started becoming a name. And he showed them a picture of him getting a haircut. And I look and I go, wait a second, I know that barber. And it was at the uh, the the Haji Mart, as it was called, in Mazari Sharif, Afghanistan, where they had a little barber shop where the Afghans would come in and cut your hair. I was like, he was up there. And he said, yeah, I was in Mazari Sharif. So, wow. And I think I might have seen him when he came through and got his haircut because we didn't see a lot of Marines. So you see a very large Marine walking around in a different uniform. And as a sailor, you're like, oh. Okay, so I may have uh, seen him, though not interacted with him, I don't think. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of important. I mean, people probably look at this as, oh, well, yeah, they just want to get fancy dressed and, and rub elbows with some celebrities. But it really does allow for uh, the ability to, one, raise some money, and to, two, bring more attention. Because when Rob Riggle says something, it means a little bit more than when <laughs> Eric Dame or Steph Mullen says something, you know? Is yeah. that kind of what how how IAVA views the gala is not just an opportunity to have a great time, but an opportunity to get more work done? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is really a chance to focus on our mission and to talk to people that may not hear about veterans issues every day. Uh, that's what we strive for all the time. But I think the Heroes Gala is a really important time to put that mark on it um, and bring people into the community that may not normally be in the veteran space and be part of the community. Um so it is a really great night. It is a lot of fun, um, but it also is a really important night for our mission to be able to connect with people, to build that community out, and uh, to hear from some important members within our space uh, and get the word out about IAVA and what we're doing. So tickets are available, and if you're interested in joining us in New York, it's uh, heroesgala.org heroesgala.org and then of course there is the IAVA website and it is kind of unique in, in several ways when it comes to the veteran service organizations. One, it's pretty much the newest one out there, at least out of the major ones. Uh, there are some smaller localized ones. Two, it's free to become a member of IAVA. So if people are interested in joining IAVA and finding out about the great work that you're doing with your research into the numbers and crunching those numbers of all the studies that come out, where do they go to do so? And also, can they find out about the newest uh, survey that IAVA just launched? Absolutely. Really glad you brought that up. So on Friday, we launched our member survey for 2018. This is our annual member survey. Uh, it went out to all our veteran and military members. Uh, and if you are a member, I ask that you check your email and please take the survey. If you are not a member, it's IVA.org slash hashtag join. And when you sign up to join, your welcome email will also have a link to the survey. Uh, and I will say if you fill out the survey and complete it, we know it takes a lot of time. We ask a lot of questions. Uh, this informs our advocacy for the year. But uh, when you complete the survey, you are able to enter in for a drawing for five round trip Southwest Air tickets. Wow. So there is uh, an extra reason for people to fill out that survey, along with being able to put, you know, your stamp, your personal stamp on what IAVA, the info that they have. And they do mm -hmm. take that info in and and try to do the best that they can with it. Uh, of course, there are some other numbers we were talking about earlier that just came out as we only have about a minute here left. We're not going to be able to get too much into it, but... The uh, El Paso County Gazette out there in Colorado reporting that the Census Bureau's annual look at veteran statistics is out. 7.3% of U.S. adults have served in the military, but only a small fraction, somewhere around 10% of that, are younger than 35, which is mm -hmm. really IAVA's membership is what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Those between the ages of, 
well, since we're still over there now, 18 and uh, up to 40s, I guess I would say. Um, does it uh, surprise you at all to hear that less than one veteran in 10 is younger than 35, considering how long all this has gone on? Um, a little bit. I would say the post 9-11 generation tends to go up even a little bit further to like 45 right. is the majority of our membership, um, 45 and under. But I will say what's more surprising to me is that when you think about 10% of the veteran population is under 35, the highest rate of suicide in the veteran population is 18 to 34. Hmm. Uh, You're looking at that 10% of the military. Yep. Or veteran community, I should say. Yep, absolutely. So um, I think that is what gives me the most pause. Yeah, and that uh, number is going to grow as far as the percentage of the veteran population as there's 600,000 or so World War II vets left with us, more leaving each day, about 6.5 million Vietnam veterans, which is twice as many as the post-9-11 generation. But again, if you joined at 18 towards the end of Vietnam, you're pushing 70 now. So that generation Mm -hmm. is leaving us in larger and larger numbers. Interesting stuff. Always interesting to talk to Steph Mullen, Research Director from Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Steph, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Morning Briefing, the Monday, October 22nd, 2018 edition. We'll be back tomorrow, and we're going to have a conversation with General Joseph Langell. He is the top man in charge of the National Guard and Air National Guard. He actually sits on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, only the fourth or fifth, I believe, head of the National Guard to do so. We're going to talk to him about the difficulties the Guard is facing with recruiting, the good programs that the Guard has to build partnerships with states within the United States and states outside of the U.S., that other kind of state. All that's coming up tomorrow and a lot more great talks this week. Morning Briefing. See you tomorrow. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.